When Timothy Trevithick received no answer on his knock on Susan Spangler's front door at about 10.30 in the morning on December 30, 1978, he thought it was odd. Susan, his 15-year-old girlfriend, was inside. He knew her brother and mother were both at home too. Perhaps they had all overslept. He knocked harder, and again, more insistently. No answer. Finally, Tim went around the house to the back, but found all the doors locked. He eventually shimmied through a basement window and went up the stairs to find Susan apparently asleep in her bed. Upon closer examination, he saw she was dead. She'd been shot once in the back. Her brother, David, was dead in his bed too, after an apparent struggle. David had died with his head and shoulders on the floor, his feet still up on the bed. Blood from a single gunshot stained the front of his shirt. Tim called the police. When Susan's father, Bob, came home later that day from the movies, he found police cars and ambulances at his Littleton, Colorado home. Inside was the ultimate horror. Not only were his children dead in their beds, but police found Nancy, his wife of 23 years, slumped over in her chair near the typewriter where she had written her suicide note. Bob's Smith & Wesson 38 revolver on the floor by her. Upstairs in their bedroom, a stepstool was still in front of the closet where he kept his gun in the back of the top shelf. They'd been having marital problems, Bob told the police, but he had no idea that Nancy was capable of anything like this. They'd been separated for nine months, but he'd recently moved back into the house and they were trying their best to reconcile. He agreed to take a polygraph test, to cooperate in any way that he could. His hands and gloves were tested for gunshot residue, and then the technician who tested him for the telltale gunshot powder took the distraught Spangler home with them for a spaghetti dinner and to spend the night with his family. They were old friends. And so, in one fell swoop, Robert Spangler was free of all family encumbrances. To all outward appearances, the event devastated him. But those who knew Nancy suspected there was more to the story. They were right. Robert Spangler and Nancy Stallman started dating in junior high school in their hometown of Amos, Iowa. According to Robert Scott in his book Married to Murder, Bob was a high school football hero and Nancy the all-American girl involved in a wide variety of extracurricular activities. They looked like they belonged together. Nancy certainly thought so. Bob was born in Des Moines, Iowa on January 10, 1933. He was adopted by Merlin and Ione Spangler of Ames, Iowa. Merlin was a professor and researcher at Iowa State University. A brilliant scholar, Merlin wrote a textbook, served as an officer in both world wars, and helped formulate the Marston-Spangler theory of soil pressure on underground conduits, which survives today. There's even a geotechnical laboratory in the ISU campus named for him. Bob, not having the benefit of the genetic makeup of his adopted father, had only good looks and athletic aptitude to lean on, and a gift for acting. He went to college at his father's school, Iowa State, more because it was expected of him than his interest in higher education. But he finished with a degree in technical journalism, and Nancy was there too, a member of the synchronized swimming team and the yearbook staff. They married in 1955, and after a stint in the army, Bob and Nancy settled down to raise a family and make a good home. Friends said she'd never been happier. Bob went to work for American Waterworks, 
moved them to Littleton, Colorado, not far from Denver. And in 1961, son David was born, followed in 1963 by daughter Susan. Nancy discovered a passion for gourmet cooking, and the family, to all outward appearances, was a perfect one. The first thing that got Stallman family members suspicious about the murders was their conviction that Nancy would never hurt herself or her children. Her children were her life, according to the Denver Rocky Mountain News. Nancy's friends and family members knew that she and Bob had been having some marital difficulties. He even moved out for time. But the day before the murders, she was upbeat and hopeful about their reconciliation, in spite of the fact that Bob had been having an affair with a co-worker. And then there were the inconsistencies in Spangler's story and the evidence. Shortly after the murders, Spangler's story changed. Later, he told police that he had come home, saw the bodies, and then went to the movies without calling anybody. He said he meant to call the police, and he was going to when he got back home again after he'd had a chance to process what he'd seen. But by the time he got back home, the police were already there, having been summoned by Susan's boyfriend. There were more inconsistencies. The test showed gunshot residue on Bob's gloves, but not on Nancy's hand. Tests showed no fingerprints on the typewriter, but instead there were obvious wipe marks. Why would Nancy wipe the keys of her typewriter after typing a suicide note that she'd merely signed with her initial N? Then the coroner determined that the handgun was fired from intermediate range, meaning two to eight inches away from her head. Most self-inflicted gunshot wounds are contact wounds, the muzzle of the gun pressing against the skin. Women hardly ever shoot themselves in the face, but Nancy's bullet entry wound was high on her forehead. She had a neurological disorder that resulted in weakness and unsteadiness in her hands, casting further suspicions on whether or not she could hold a gun so far from her forehead and fire it. Besides, Nancy was afraid of guns. Not only was it unlikely she could or would fire a gun like that at herself, but there was also no way she could have wrestled with 17-year-old David, who had clearly wrestled with someone. Nancy weighed about a hundred pounds. And then the gun was found five and a half feet away from her body. None of this added up to Nancy's relatives. Even the police were suspicious, but there was no concrete evidence with which to charge her husband, Bob Spangler. He even showed up for his polygraph test. Twice. Both times he hyperventilated, rendering the tests useless. He was nervous, he said. Her family said he knew how to ace the test. He had all three bodies cremated right away. Bob Spangler was at his best with a woman by his side to admire his athletic abilities. And on July 14, 1979, just seven months after the death of his entire family, and at the age of 46, he married again, and his new wife moved into the home he had once shared with Nancy and the kids. Sharon Cooper was a fit hiker and a writer whose passion was the Grand Canyon. She was sparkly and bubbly, although she suffered from manic depression and took a cocktail of drugs in an attempt to control that dark side of her personality. And Bob had been enamored with her ever since they met as co-workers at American Waterworks. In fact, they'd become lovers not long after they met, but they kept their affair under wraps. The fact that Bob had been married for 23 years and would likely lose half or more of everything should Nancy divorce him was a great incentive for discretion. 
Still, their neighbors and all friends of Nancy's were aghast that Bob would replace her and the children as quickly as he did, but he paid no attention to them. He was off on a new adventure. The whole chapter of family life with children had been closed. Bob readily admitted that he had a talent for compartmentalizing things and that he didn't care to live in the past. His new life consisted of Sharon, hikes in the Grand Canyon, and her three dogs, which were better than children. They didn't talk back. They didn't smoke dope. They respected him and behaved as they ought to. Sharon was a strict disciplinarian with the dogs, Sunshine, Shadow, and Molly, and they were perfectly trained. In 1986, two things of importance happened in the Spangler household. The first was that Sharon's book, One Foot in the Grand Canyon, and earned her a reputation as an authentic, realistic hiker and nature writer who laid it on the line with regards to the danger as well as the beauty of many of the Grand Canyon trails. She didn't sugarcoat anything. The other thing that happened in 1986 was that Bob, feeling some financial pressures, went to visit his father, Merlin Spangler, back in Ames, Iowa. The elder Spangler was now 92 years old, but in fine health. A few days after Bob arrived at his father's home, the elder Spangler took a terrible fall. He was dead within two weeks. Bob inherited a tidy sum and was able to retire, but Sharon's mental and emotional problems continued to escalate, and it was wearing on their marriage. In December 1987, Sharon made a frantic, incoherent call to the police, saying she was afraid of Bob. She ran from the house into a local supermarket and hid in a stockroom. She struggled with police when they tried to take her out of the grocery store, convinced that Bob was out to get her, and it's uncertain if she was justifiably terror-struck or if her medications were out of whack. Regardless, she and Bob divorced soon thereafter. The divorce settlement was hard on Bob. It included spousal support payments to her of $500 per month until 1990 and then $400 per month until July 1997. She took another $150,000 in compensation from stocks and bonds, and they each had visitation rights with the three dogs, although Sharon took Shadow and left Sunshine and Molly with Bob. There was one strange clause to the divorce decree, and that was that Bob was to receive $20,000 back from her estate should Sharon predecease him. It was an expensive divorce for him. In fact, he had to go back to work, but he didn't seem to be able to quite sever ties with Sharon. Not then, and not for a long time. Sharon moved on and found Michael, another equally distressed soul to increasingly complicate her life. Bob, single again at 55, frantically sought a new mate. He started by placing a personals ad. Donna Sundling, an aerobics instructor with five grown children from nearby Evergreen, Colorado, answered his ad. Donna fell head over heels in love with Bob and was willing to do just about anything for him. The first thing she did was marry him on August 18, 1990, after a whirlwind courtship. Then he talked her into selling her expensive, upscale home and moving with him, on an apparent whim, to Durango, Colorado. There he got a job as a morning drive-time on-air personality for KRSJ, a country music station where he grew to enormous popularity. According to the Durango Herald, he also worked part-time as a referee for Durango Parks and Recreation, officiating at youth and adult basketball and soccer games. Bob was crazy about hiking the Grand Canyon, and their home was filled with large framed photos of the canyon, 
left over from his days with Sharon. Donna was fit and willing to do about anything for him. But besides suffering from vertigo, she was afraid of heights. A fitness instructor is not the same as a strong hiker. And at 56 years old, she struggled to keep up with her super fit and proud of it, husband on some canyon hikes that scared her. She used ski poles to help her keep her balance on the trails. She did it, but she didn't like it. She did it for him. Eventually, she didn't go with them as often as he would have liked, and he sought out other hikers to join him on his treks. It wasn't long before Bob knew this marriage was in trouble too. Donna just wasn't what he expected. She wasn't what he wanted anymore. But divorce. Divorce was expensive, as he'd already discovered with Sharon. She knew their marriage was in trouble too, and in an effort to save it, she agreed to one more Grand Canyon hike with him. On Easter Sunday, April 11, 1993, a disheveled but strangely calm Bob Spangler showed up at the backcountry ranger station, saying that his wife had taken a tragic fall. She was dead 160 feet below the red wall at Horseshoe Mesa, where they'd stopped for a photo. He set up his camera to take a photograph of them both, and when he turned back around, she had vanished. He had heard nothing. When he saw her broken body lying motionless beneath him, he scrambled down, found her dead, washed the blood from her face with his handkerchief, covered her with a tarp, grabbed her pack, and headed back up to report the tragedy. The rangers snickered about divorce by Grand Canyon. But there was no evidence of foul play, despite the fact that the place she fell was probably the only place on their hiking route that would have resulted in a fatal fall. And the fact that he never heard her cry out when she went over was an odd detail they couldn't quite forget. When he got home, the distraught Spangler called John Mackley, his boss at the radio station, and told him that Donna had fallen in the Grand Canyon and died, and that Spangler wouldn't be into work. He had her cremated right away. Donna left behind five grieving children and five grandchildren. Mackley and his wife, along with all the Spangler's friends and co-workers, attended the memorial service Bob designed, at which he eulogized her at length. One friend called the service tearless and weird. Spangler even went back to the Grand Canyon to scatter wildflower seeds at Donna's Point, the place at which she died. The grieving husband also went on local talk shows, discussing the dangers of hiking in the canyon. He was quoted in USA Today and on NPR. Afterward, he confided in John Mackley that his teenage son David had gone crazy back in 1978 and killed Bob's wife and daughter, then turned the gun on himself. When Mackley related this information to his wife, Pam remembers saying, How much can one poor man endure? It wasn't the first time Spangler had changed the facts of that story, and it wouldn't be the last. He told others that his whole family had died in a terrible car accident in which he was the driver and sole survivor. While Bob was busy with his failing marriage to Donna, his second wife, Sharon's life was falling apart. Michael, her boyfriend, was in even worse shape than she was, and when Bob reopened communications and told her about Donna's death, Sharon thought she might be able to lean on Bob, as always. Besides, she needed the comfort only her dogs could provide. So in July of 1994, she came to visit him in Durango and ended up staying in Bob's guest room. But it didn't help. 
Shadow, her dog and best friend, died, and Sharon was inconsolable. She spent day after day crying and mourning the loss. Bob, meantime, was the happiest disc jockey Durango had ever seen. Always ebullient and upbeat to a fault, he coached soccer and hiked local trails, always with a smile on his face. He reveled in his minor celebrity. John Mackley, his boss at the small radio station, never even knew Bob had a wife between Nancy and Donna, much less that she was back living with him. Spangler never once mentioned her to any of his co-workers. And then, on October 2, 1994, just five months after moving in with Bob, the 52-year-old Sharon's grief became too much for her to bear. She took an overdose of prescription medication and left a note on her bedroom door. I've done it this time. From there, the details get sketchy. As usual, Bob would change his story. One version he told had him come home, see the note, try to rouse an unresponsive Sharon, and he carried her immediately to the emergency room. In another version, he came home, saw the note, but didn't pay any attention to it until much later, when he went into her room, found her groggy, helped her into the car, and took her to the emergency room. What is certain is that she died a few hours after being treated in the hospital. Again, details are foggy. One account says that the doctors who treated her thought she'd be fine, but she was left alone in a room for a while with Spangler just before she died. Regardless, she did die, and there's no investigation into her death, and Spangler no longer had to pay the spousal support. He also got the $20,000 back from her estate. He had to file a lawsuit to get it, as had been stipulated in their divorce agreement, and he had her cremated right away. His co-workers at the small radio station never knew. They never knew he had another wife, never knew she was living with him after Donna's death, never knew he had taken her to the emergency room, never knew she had died. Even he must have thought that would sound like one too many dead wives. Bill Burnett, one of Donna's friends, certainly thought so, and phoned a friend in law enforcement to look into it. In 1998, Spangler suddenly quit his job at the radio station, sold everything. He had inherited Donna's half of their Durango home and moved to Pennsylvania to pursue a woman he had met over the internet. That particular relationship didn't pan out, but he was on the move, on the hunt, and he relentlessly pursued women, desperate to be married again. His favorite date was a hike in the Grand Canyon, but by now he was being watched by the police. They were afraid there would be another Grand Canyon accident. Bob eventually moved to Grand Junction, Colorado, to pursue a woman whose interest in him began to wane. He continued to encourage her while dating others. He didn't have time to waste. By the time he met Judy Hilty at a breakfast for singles, he was working as vice president of Applecrest Irrigation Company and dabbling in community theater. He and Judy were instantly attracted to each other, and all other women fell into the background. Then he had a little trouble with his eyesight. Then he couldn't remember his lines and play rehearsals and had some trouble concentrating. He went to the doctor on August 12, 2000, and got the bad news. Inoperable lung cancer that had spread to his brain. Spangler was 67. On September 1st, he and Judy married. The cops moved closer. They were afraid Judy was about to have an accident. The first time the police went to visit Bob was right after Sharon's death in August 1995. 
Alerted by one dead wife too many, investigations were reopened into the death of Nancy and her children by the Arapahoe County Police. Investigator Paul Goodman began working in conjunction with Investigator Bev Perry with the FBI on the death of Donna on federal lands in the Grand Canyon. Bob was not surprised to see the police and invited the investigators in, spoke calmly with them about the tragedies that had befallen him. He continued to change the details of his stories, and when asked about that, he said, I compartmentalize things and don't live in the past. Investigators left him, but behind the scenes, work had just begun. It required amazing coordination of efforts, since he was being investigated for not only a Colorado state murder case, but also a federal murder. And then there were the suspicious deaths of both his father and his second wife, Sharon. Over the years, the Spangler file began to build with questionnaires sent to many Durango residents and the re-examination of old forensic evidence with up-to-date technology. Camille Bibles, Assistant United States Attorney, was now involved, and the wheels of justice began to grind a little more rapidly. But once his terminal diagnosis was confirmed, they had no choice but to make their move. The way to handle Spangler, the investigators realized, was to play to his enormous ego. When they finally knocked on the door of his Grand Junction home and invited him to the police station for questioning, they already had set the stage. Spangler had to walk past boxes and boxes marked Spangler Task Force. This pleased him. The police began by telling him that they'd never investigated a killer quite like him before. His response? It requires a singular focus in committing the actual crime, quite cold-bloodedly, Spangler said. Facing death from cancer, he was eager to unburden himself and readily confess to the killing of Nancy and the children. Strangely enough, he wanted to confess these crimes to a profiler, who could perhaps answer a few questions about himself. He was adopted, he said. He didn't know how he could have behaved the way he had. Investigators said that the profilers only spoke to serial killers who had killed more than three people. Apparently, one had to be a real killer for an interview with a profiler. Just killing three wasn't good enough. Spangler was fascinated with the idea of talking with a profiler. He thought about that for a moment, then asked to speak privately with his wife. They agreed, and let Bob and Judy have some time alone together. When he returned, he said, You've got your cereal. By 1974, Bob Spangler was bored out of his mind. His kids were out of control, and his wife had a life of her own. But he was just a worker bee, droning through life. Then he met Sharon at work. She was vivacious and sparkly, and he was more than smitten with her. He was obsessed. He moved out of the house, and for nine months he rarely even saw the children. He was busy with his new life, his new love. But divorce was going to be horribly expensive after all those years of marriage. There had to be another way. Slowly, a cure for his problems began to formulate in his mind. He moved back in with Nancy and the kids to try to reconcile. Or so he told everyone. The kids had lost respect for him and weren't shy about offering up that opinion. He carefully set the stage for this little play, typing a suicide note on the typewriter in the basement. He told Nancy it was a Christmas letter and set it in front of her. Without reading it, she signed her initial. Then he staged a big fight with her on the evening of December 29th and made sure that there were witnesses to it. 
Then, on December 30th, he placed a footstool in front of the open closet door where he kept his 38 revolver and lured Nancy to the basement. He had her sit in front of the typewriter, told her he had a surprise for her and to close her eyes. Excitedly, she did what she was told, and he shot her in the forehead. Then he sneaked upstairs and shot Susan once in the back. David was more difficult because Bob had to shoot him in the chest, and David didn't die right away. He wrestled with his dad, but Bob couldn't shoot him again because he knew Nancy wouldn't have done that. So he smothered his son with the boy's own pillow. Then Bob left the house, drove around for a while, and eventually went to see the animated Lord of the Rings. It seemed like a good idea at the time, he said of the massacre. It wasn't long after Bob married fitness instructor Donna that he realized she was not the woman for him. He met her via personal ads, and while she had seemed perfect, time proved that they had nothing in common. There was only her undying devotion to him. Bob was eager to show everyone, particularly the women in his life, his athletic prowess, but Donna didn't enjoy hiking in the Grand Canyon, and it had become his life. He knew from his expensive experience divorcing Sharon that Donna would likely take him to the cleaners, especially since he had encouraged her to sell her very nice evergreen home and put all that money into the Durango house. There was a solution to his unhappiness, he knew, that would be easier than divorce. He finally succeeded in talking her into taking another Grand Canyon trip with them and masterminded his plan on the way. They would hike a trail that went past the Red Wall on Horseshoe Mesa, a ledge that was perfect for the crime, in that the drop-off was so severe that she was certain to die when she hit bottom. Even Sharon, the Grand Canyon expert, was afraid of that area. Bob queried hikers they met on the trail to make certain they wouldn't be camping in the same vicinity. And in fact, he and Donna camped on an illegal site just to make certain of it. The next morning, Easter Sunday, he decided it was now or never and shoved her over the ledge while she was looking him right in the face. Then he climbed down to her, perhaps to make certain she was dead and to complete the task if she wasn't. He cleaned the blood off her face, covered her with a tarp, and went to the authorities. He said their marriage had been a mistake. Except for just those two bad days, Spangler told investigators, he'd been a model citizen. He denied all responsibility for the death of Sharon. But on November 5th, 2000, he pled not guilty, intimating that his brain cancer had led him to make faulty confessions. The Arapahoe County District Attorney's Office consulted with Nancy's family and determined it would be a waste of money to bring him to Colorado for trial for the murder of his Littleton, Colorado family. It just didn't seem like a prudent expenditure, prosecution spokesman Michael Knight said, since Spangler had an apparent month or so left to live. The families agreed. David Fitch, Nancy Spangler's half-brother, said, if the man truly has terminal cancer, it's very unlikely he'd survive until the end of the trial. Spangler eventually signed a plea agreement to serve life in prison for Donna Sundling's first-degree murder. His request to have his ashes spread in the Grand Canyon was denied. Judy Hilty Spangler stood by her man until the very end. She said her husband had told her that his prior marriages had ended tragically, but she never suspected he was involved in their deaths. I had no idea he was capable of this sort of thing, she said. He always seemed a very gentle person. 
Bob Spangler died in the Federal Corrections Medical Center in Springfield, Missouri, at 3.15 a.m. on August 5, 2001, 10 months after being taken into custody and 23 years after killing Nancy and the kids.